You may be wondering, what in the world is going on? Why are we in the book of Isaiah and not the gospel of Mark? Well, the explanation is that this is a very special Sunday in the life of our church. We have some very exciting news about a church plant that Grace Life is going to be involved in, but we don't like to just um, announce something and then go on with business as usual. We thought this would be a great teaching opportunity, a great opportunity to, to recast the vision that this church has had since day one. And so we wanted to hit the stop button on the uh, Conquering Codependency series and our study through Mark's gospel, and we wanted to just talk about what motivates a Christian to live on mission. So if you have a copy of God's Word, make your way to the passage that Abby just read. That's what I'm going to be talking about. And listen, you can mark this Sunday in your calendar because this is going to be the shortest sermon you've ever heard me preach. And I know, I know you're going to fall out of your chair backwards. I'm not going to, I'm not going to preach for very long because when I'm finished, Jeff's going to come up here and share some of the vision for the next church plant that we're going to be involved in. Uh, and then Pam Strickland's going to come up here for a few minutes and show you some pictures, okay? So Isaiah chapter 6, and I want to introduce it like this. As a Christian, as a theologian, and as a pastor, I am always interested in what motivates people. What motivates people to change? And what powers people to change? What makes them go from thinking one particular way about themselves, about God, and, and about the people around them to a completely different and opposite place? What does that? As a Christian, I'm always asking myself that question because so many things are included in the answer to that question. I mean, if you think about it, what makes an angry man, what makes a perverted man, what makes a greedy man kind and gracious and chaste and radically generous? What does that? You know, there's an old saying, when is a thief no longer a thief? You know the answer most people give? When he stops stealing. Is that true though? No, the thief's still a thief, he's just on vacation, right? When is a thief no longer a thief? When he's radically generous. That's the answer. When he has a change from the inside out. And as Christians, we need to be asking ourselves, what does that? What does that? What changes a person? What makes a fearful woman courageous? What turns in the church a consumer, somebody that just comes to get, 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 and never produce, never serve? What changes their perspective? What turns them into the person that shows up early, stays late, volunteers, counsels people, meets needs, and doesn't want any fanfare for it? What does that? And here's uh, another way to put it. What takes a person out of the bleachers, off the bench, and onto the field, into the game, ready to play, ready to fight, ready to serve their team? What does that? And here's where I'm really moving towards. I could say it another way before we go on, because this answer ladies and gentlemen, is so critical for a Christian to understand. No matter what issue it is you're facing, what galvanizes a Christian to endure hardship and to survive intense persecution when you're living on mission, and tragedy, the death of a loved one, or heartache, a divorce, or a rocky marriage, or bankruptcy, or homelessness, or drug abuse. What helps a person conquer, as Jeff's been talking about, codependency on a person, an object, or a thing. And, and here's the question we're moving towards. What is it that drives a Christian toward their mission field? What is it that pushes us, galvanizes us, helps us leverage our life for the sake of God and His kingdom? What does that? Because the answer for all those things is not different. There's not ten different answers for ten different problems. There's one solution. It's very simple. It's very clear. 
And that's all over the pages of Scripture, and that's really what I want to talk to you about. When James Calvert went as a missionary to an island in Fiji decades and decades and decades ago, it's a very hostile environment that he was being sent in. And the, the captain of the ship, when he learned that's where he was taking him to be a missionary, he said, if you go there, those people are going to kill you. You're going to die. And he and his missionary team turned and looked at the captain and famously said, we already died before we came here, sir. We already died. Our life is not our own. We have been buried with Christ, we've died with Christ, and we've been raised to walk in newness of life. So what is it that, that galvanized James Calvert to, to go as a missionary to a dangerous and hostile environment where there were cannibals? And what about William Carey? Do you remember him? He was a pioneer missionary to India. And at a meeting back in the United States, he met with a group of pastors and he shared his, his feelings of his obligation to go to all the nations and preach the message about Christ. And you would think they would stand up and, and applaud his effort and help him, but they tried to dissuade him. In fact, the leader of the meeting said this. He said, you sit down, young man. If God wants to convert the pagans and the heathens, he'll do it without your help or mine. <laughs> but you know what? William Carey went anyway. Why? That's the question. What drove James Calvert to go to that dangerous Fiji island? What drove William Carey to keep going? And there's another story. You've heard it before. Three years ago, I told this story. John Patton felt the call of God to go to the South Pacific Islands where there were infamous cannibals that were very hostile. It was a notorious place for idolatry and for violence and persecution. What caused him to go there? In fact, before he went, just a few years earlier, some missionaries from London went there. And as soon as their boat touched the beach, within minutes, the cannibals had killed them and eaten them. And John Patton heard that and he said, I don't care. I'm going anyway. And he went, and within five months, his wife died of fever. His newborn baby died of the same fever, and he buried them. And in his journal, he wrote, he slept on top of their graves, lest the natives dig up their bodies and eat them. And the sucker stayed there. He stayed there until he was 79 years old. And it was said, this was said of him. When he went to the New Hebrides Islands, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. He stayed there and proclaimed the majesty and the beauty of Christ the triumph over sin and condemnation, he stayed. He faced and endured some of the most intense persecution I've ever read about in history. For four hours, a native got a hold of a musket, loaded it, and followed him around the island with it aimed, and the trigger, not the trigger, the, uh, I'm a redneck, I'm supposed to know these things. The gun was ready to be fired, okay, and it was aimed at his head, and he followed him around the island, everywhere he went, for four hours. Four hours, John Patton prayed, spoke kindly to the man, and eventually he threw the weapon down and ran away. How could you endure that? How could you stay? When I read his story, I wanted to quit and go home for him. <laughs> so what galvanizes a Christian to do something like that? Or to, or to endure wave after wave of depression or affliction or tragedy? What is it? The answer is the same, my friends. The answer is the same. The gospel does that. The gospel does that. It moves us into our mission field and it keeps us there for the cause of Christ. And we see that in Isaiah. And I'm going to just very shortly here, you see this in really four steps. Let's look at this together. I don't have any slides for you. Jeff has some slides. This is going to be more like a sermon devotional, okay? These are the steps that Isaiah went through. And it's interesting. Verse 1 says, this is the year that King Uzziah died. So, little context. Uzziah had been king for 52 years. 
Just let that settle in your mind for a minute. Same king who was amazing. This king had it all. He was famous for his ingenuity, his authority, his power, his wisdom. And for over five decades, he had sat on the throne and he died a tragic death. He contracted leprosy from, for doing something he shouldn't have done. He went into the temple and he offered sacrifice. He took upon himself the role of a priest in addition to that of a king. And God said, uh-uh. So he died a cursed man. He died a leper. And the whole kingdom was shaken up. Imagine that. If you had had... Uh, a, a conservative evangelical president for over 50 years and all of a sudden he was cursed by God and died. The whole nation is in upheaval. Their king is dead. And, you, and Isaiah is a prophet. He's young. He's new to the field. And he thinks, God, what are you doing? And he walked in the temple and God gave him this incredible vision and look what it says. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. What's the first thing God wants Isaiah to know? Isaiah, the, your king's dead, but the more important king is living. He's alive. He's seated. He's high and lofty. He's on his throne. The train of his robe filled the whole temple. I, can, I, I wish somehow I could see what Isaiah saw. I think words get, get lost in translation. He was high. He was lifted up, clothed in majesty. You know, the length of your... Have you seen any royal weddings, how long the train of the robe is of the monarch? The longer the train of the robe, the more importance and power and authority. So this is demonstrating how majestic God is. And, my, and Isaiah sees him. And then this is what's next. Above him stood the seraphim. That's a word for angel. Above him stood the angels, the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. A whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Now this is a majestic view of God that Isaiah sees, and that's where this always starts. All these people, the history I just read you, John Patton, William Carey, and many of you could testify, what is it that helps you endure hardship and sends you into your mission? It is an earth-shattering encounter with God. That's what it is, folks. That's what it is. It's nothing less than that. Nothing less than that will ever move you to lasting endurance. Nothing. So how do you know if you've had an earth-shattering encounter with God? Does it go away like last year's fireworks and just shrivel up and die out? Well, here are the steps. First, you see God's majesty, and that's what he saw. He saw God high and lifted up. He was in the nosebleed section, okay? And here's what comes next. And this is a hard point, but I need to tell it to you. Not only did he see God's majesty, he felt his own misery. When he saw God for the first time, and this is early in Isaiah's ministry. In fact, the last chapter, Isaiah has been walking around saying, Woe to Jerusalem, woe to Israel, woe to Judah, your covetousness, your pride, your drunkenness, your carelessness, woe to you. Woe is a word for curse in the Bible. And then Isaiah sees the Lord... And he sees himself, and what does he say? Check this out. What's he say? Woe is me. When you see God truly for the first time, you will actually see yourself. There was a rendition of Victor Hugo's story, uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. There's been many different versions done of that book. Um, one movie shows the hunchback. He was born deaf with a severely messed up back, but he wasn't born blind. And he sees true beauty for the first time in his life in a, in a gypsy named Esmeralda. And she's being hunted by the government. He swings down on a rope, rescues her, takes her back up to his tower, and looks at her and he begins to weep. 
And she says, Quasimodo, what is it? Why are you crying? He says, because I see how truly beautiful you are. And for the first time in my life, I see how ugly and hideous I truly am. And that's really what Isaiah experienced here. He saw God's holiness and he saw himself as an unworthy sinner, not worthy to be in God's presence, condemned, guilty, cursed. Isaiah is basically calling down a curse on himself. He says, I'm unworthy to be in the presence of this king. Woe is me, I am lost. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Listen, Isaiah stops comparing himself to other people. Listen, it's easy to do that. If I were to ask you today in this room, are you a good person? You may try to compare yourself to somebody else. Go watch a cold case files on Netflix or something. You'd feel pretty good about yourself, right? You're not a serial psychotic murderer. But Isaiah saw the Lord and he saw himself and he said, I'm cursed, I'm undone, I'm a sinner. But listen, God did not leave Isaiah there. He did not leave him there. Satan wants you to stay there. In fact, this is what's interesting to me. When the Bible tells us what is it exactly that Satan tries to eclipse? What is it that Satan tries to blind us from seeing? Is it God's holiness? No. Satan doesn't care to offer you to see God's holiness. Or God's wrath. That doesn't bother him. Or God's justice or God's word or God's law. He doesn't care if you see any of those things as long as that's all you see because that's just enough to condemn you and break you, right? This is what Satan tries to blind us to and eclipse us from, seeing God's mercy and God's compassion. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4 says, Satan tries to blind us to the glory of Christ and the glory of the gospel. So look at what he sees next. I'm a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. Verse 6. And this is the next stage. How do you know you've had an encounter with God? You see God's majesty. You feel your own misery. And the next is you receive God's mercy. Look at this. Then one of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. I've heard this passage preached on, and it's always, not always, most of the time they just focus on, oh, look at this vision of God, oh, he's undone, he's cursed, oh, this is amazing, God is awesome and he's holy, and man, we're just worthless. Well, let's close in prayer. Time out. That's not the end of the story. He receives mercy. Do you know what an altar signified to a Jew? Sacrifice, atonement. You see how merciful God is? He says, Isaiah, I know you're cursed. I know you're undone. I know you've pronounced a death sentence on yourself. But listen, I am a God of love and I'm a God of compassion as well as a God of justice and wrath. And I have provided a way for you, a sinner, to be able to stand in my presence. And it's this, sacrifice. This is pointing forward to what Christ will do in the New Testament. Atonement, that means to cover your sins have been covered, Isaiah. Your guilt has been taken away and removed. And i got to move quick here. we got to move quick. So he saw God's majesty. He felt his own misery. He received God's mercy. And then check this out. He moved into mission. Anytime you read in the Bible about an earth-shattering encounter with God, always, always, always mark it down. The end result is that person is going to move into mission. Worship always ends in mission work, because God is a missionary God. Check this out. Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Not me. Uh-uh, you ain't getting me to go out there in a million years, Lord. Not me. 
What did Isaiah say? He volunteered, guys. He said, here I am, Lord. Send me. I'm a willing missionary. I want to go. I want to send this message. I want to represent. Do you see what God's asking? He says, who will go and who will, who will represent me? Who's going to be my ambassador? And listen, Isaiah knows his audience. He's not crossing an ocean or going to cannibals. He's just walking outside the temple. Israel is calloused. They're cold-hearted. They're dull. They're imperceptible. They're messed up. You can read that in the rest of this chapter. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, don't understand. Keep on seeing, do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then look at verse 11. Isaiah heard exactly who it was. He was going to be his target audience. And he said, how long, Lord? And he said, until the cities are laid waste. And Isaiah didn't say a word. Isn't this amazing, guys? This is a, pat- this is a map of the Christian experience. It really is. We see God's majesty. We feel our own misery. We receive his mercy and we move toward mission. We move toward our mission field always. The gospel galvanizes us for action. It really does. It pushes us out. It sends us out. And Jeff and I from day one, that has been our goal. That has been our purpose. That has been our desire. I don't think a church is known by its seating capacity. It's known by its sending capacity. We want to be a church that plants churches, that plants churches, that make disciples, that make disciples. We don't want to, as Jeff will tell you in a minute, supersize. We want to multiply. And so we have, uh, Jeff, come on up here, brother. We have a really unique opportunity that God just dropped in our lap to be able to plant another church and just expand God's kingdom. And we could say, no, we're not ready for that. It's too early. It's too much risk. We're really comfortable here. We're really growing. We're seeing more guests than we've ever seen. Or we could say, God, we hear the call. We have seen the king. We felt our misery. We've received mercy. And we're ready to be sent out. And we're going to choose the latter. And we're going to explain to you all the reasons why.